Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. I want to share with you this morning a message that may ruffle a few feathers, it may rattle a few cages, but that's okay. That's not my intent necessarily. But have you ever had something where you grew up thinking a certain way about something? Like you thought this was the way it was, and then when you get older, you realize maybe I had a version of it that was slightly off. You know, when I married Romy, I'm an American, she's Australian. These are two cultures coming together. They would say about Australia and America that we're two people separated by a common language. You'll get that in a minute. There is Australian English, and there is American English, and apparently there's English English. Did you know that there's an English English as well, too? And so sometimes things get lost in translation, but what's funny is Australia got a lot of the songs from America or from England like we did, but sometimes, I don't know if it's in the trans-Pacific flight or maybe the transmission lines between Australia and America, but they tend to get things a little bit different sometimes. Or maybe we get them a little bit different. And so you grow up with a version of something that may not be the most accurate version. You know the song Celebration? Celebrate good times. Come on. Mm, 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 mm. Who sings that? Cool and the Gang. Thank you very much. Well, when I got to Australia, they're like, you guys have that song too? No, what do you mean? They're like, oh, that's this Sydney band that wrote that song. I was like, whoa, hang on. You cannot claim Cool in the Gang as Australian. That is definitely an American song, right? And they're like, I'm pretty sure you're wrong on that one. And so we're like, we'll just let you believe what you want to believe. And then I remember, um, I think I shared this a couple of weeks ago. You know the song, the Pina Colada song? I actually don't. Anybody know that one, the, 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 the band? If you like Pina Coladas, getting caught in the rain. You know that song? Who knows who sung that? It's not Jimmy Buffett. Somebody's going to have to Google it. You're allowed to Google it. Is it Steely Dan? I think it's one of those really one-hit wonder things that somebody Google that for me. We'll have to figure that one out. But if you, uh, yeah, because Google's right. Uh, All of you are on DuckDuckGo right now saying it won't tell me. So that Pina Colada song. Her sister used to sing this all the time, and she would go, if you like beans and tomatoes, and she would sing this around the house. Who is it? Rupert Holmes. Holmes. See, I told you it was somebody weird. Yeah. You'd be amazed at how many songs people like Bruce Springsteen wrote that other people sang, and people don't realize that Bruce Springsteen actually wrote it. Totally not what I'm talking about today. But... She would sing this song, Beans and Tomatas, and first of all, we don't call them tomatas, okay? So I don't know where that word came from, but she was convinced that that was the lyrics of the song. This was before you could Google lyrics, you know what I mean? But have you ever Googled the lyrics of a song and went, oh my gosh, I've been singing it wrong my whole life? Now, what do you do in that moment? You keep singing it the way you've always sung it, right? And so I can't hear the Pina Colada song without singing Beans and Tomatas. It's the funniest thing ever to me, right? We've all got versions of that that we grew up, and some, some songs people just don't even know what, no one, some of those Pearl Jam songs, I still don't know what some of those lyrics are. 
But sometimes you grow up with a version of something that may not entirely be the way it was. I'm going to share with you the story of Jesus' birth. And maybe the feathers that I might ruffle a little bit is our picture of what Jesus' birth looked like might be a little different to what it really is. Now, where do you get those songs in your head from? It's because a lot of times it's what somebody taught you. It's what's something you learned. Or maybe it was a movie you watched or it was a flannel graph you had in, in kids' church when you were a young kid, but you grow up with a version of something and suddenly you don't realize where that mental picture came from, but every time you hear the story, you get the same mental picture in your head. I want to read to you from Luke chapter 2. We're going to read the story about Jesus' birth. There's a reason I want to tell you this this morning. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Now, let me explain to you. In Luke's gospel, Luke, the four gospels are written with four different purposes in mind. Luke's intent in writing his gospel is to write to quite a universal audience. He's trying to write this to people that would have no context of Israel geography or who Jesus was. And so he's trying to make a universal appeal. If I'm explaining to somebody from Seattle what Hampton Roads is like, I'm not going to use colloquialisms. I'm not going to say, go down the boulevard. They're like, what boulevard? I'm like, Virginia Beach Boulevard, you dummy. Everybody knows that. Well, if you're not from here, you don't know that. Luke is writing his gospel as if the people he's writing to don't understand. So when he says, he's very detailed when he goes, Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. You'd see that Mark and Matthew don't have quite that level of detail. Okay, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, Praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into the heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Father, I pray this morning that you'd meet with us again. Lord, I pray that any of my empty words, God, would just fall on deaf ears here this morning. But the things that are of you, that your word, we know will not return back empty. 
but it will accomplish what you've set out for it to do. So God, I pray that you'd let my words be your words this morning, that you'd speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. I think when we look at the birth of Jesus, there are some pretty common misconceptions that we have of what actually took place and what it looked like. And so maybe our typical nativity scene that we have of, you know, we put out in the front yard with, there's, there's a barn and Jesus was born and there's a bunch of animals around him, and Mary and Joseph are all by themselves and there's a big star over the barn and here's some wise men and here's some shepherds, all these kind of things. I think sometimes we get this picture in our head or maybe all the Christmas plays and pageants that we've been involved with and put our kids in or gone through ourselves. I was the We Three Kings of Orient R soloist one year. It was terrible. Wasn't my key, all right? I couldn't sing in that key. But I remember that was my shining moment as like, a, how old was I? Like seven or something like that? I was a little older than that. Either way, it was terrible. That's all I remember. But we get this idea of what this scene really looked like. And I want to talk to you about a couple of misconceptions and, and actually probably paint a little bit more of an accurate picture. And there's a reason I want to do this, not because I want to totally reinvent all of our Christmas plays and make you throw out your nativity scene and build a brand new one. That wouldn't be a bad idea. But here's the first problem that we have. And what I refer to this is, is the rejection problem, okay? Sometimes the picture we have is that Mary and Joseph are traveling to Bethlehem and everybody rejected them as if they, they could find no place to stay. No one would take them in. Sorry, we're busy with our thing. You're going to have to go to the barn. And it's almost as if the town of Bethlehem had rejected Mary and Joseph. Anybody kind of had that picture, that idea? And here poor Mary and Joseph are. She's very pregnant and no one will look after her. No one will take care of her. I call it the rejection problem. And I say it's a problem because I want you to have perspective of who Joseph is. Luke makes the point, not just to say he is of the house of David, but he makes a point to say he is of the house and the lineage of David. Do you know what that makes him? Often you see Jerusalem called the city of David, but Luke makes a point to, to have them understand that Bethlehem is also called the city of David. If Joseph is of the house and line of King David, Joseph is a royal. He is well known in that town as being of royal blood. Now, there's a Roman occupation that's happening, so there's not really a king in charge right now. But as far as the people of the town of Bethlehem were concerned, all Joseph would have to do is show up and go, oh, by the way, I am son of, son of, son of. And any house in that whole town would have gone, please come right in. Any royal is welcome in this house. We watched this uh, uh, documentary, miniseries, whatever it's called, Victoria. Anybody ever see the Victoria miniseries? We go back and watch it sometimes on Sunday nights because my daughter and my wife love it. I don't love it. I don't like that sort of stuff, but sometimes I'm sitting there alongside. And there, there was this beautiful scene where Victoria, the Queen of England, and her husband, Albert, they got lost somewhere, like they're out on their horses and they lost the king and the, or the queen and the, whatever he is, the Prince of Wales. They lose them and they're suddenly lost, which never happens for like a queen of England. And they just happened. It was like cold and starting to rain. And they ended up in this 
little village and they knock on the door of a place and because there's no TV or internet, they don't really recognize it as Victoria. It's just this old couple that welcome them into their home and, and they have like this beautiful little getaway where nobody knows who they are. And then all of a sudden, all these soldiers who have been, you know, probably going to lose their life because they lost the queen are suddenly knocking on the door of this household and they're almost like, do we come out? Do we keep hiding? What do we do? And all these soldiers come in and they come out and, 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 and the old man is like looking at her, looking at him. And he says, you never told me your name. She goes, it's Victoria. And they suddenly realize we had royalty in our house this whole time. Now, if they had known that it was Victoria, do you think they would have gone, there's no room here, but try the barn. Do you think they would have said that? It's almost as if Joseph would have been the same way. When he showed up in Bethlehem, he would have stayed anywhere that he possibly wanted to. We also know that Elizabeth, her cousin, Mary's cousin, was only about a mile away from there because Bethlehem and where Elizabeth was from was not too far. They had family in town they could have stayed with. They didn't stay in the barn. To turn away a descendant of David in the city of David would be an unspeakable shame on this whole community. Not to mention Mary's pregnant. Now find me a culture anywhere in the world where a woman sees another pregnant woman about to give birth and turns her away. No way. Every culture in the world would very much welcome and help a woman who is pregnant and is in need in the time of her birth. So to turn somebody away like that would have been a disaster. To say there's no room here, you're going to have to go to the barn, it wouldn't happen, okay? Second problem, I call the manger problem. I think what happens with the manger problem is we think manger, we think barns, we think stables, we think animals. That's what a manger actually looks like. That's what we read, what happens when we read this as like modern readers. But the problem with the barn idea is that the manger is in a barn is you're assuming that most average Middle Eastern families of the time were rich enough to have two buildings. They weren't. They lived in one story, one room, often houses, and no one was rich enough to have their own barn. That would have been like really, really wealthy to have that many animals. And so we typically think if it's a manger, it must be in a barn. But again, we're reading it through our modern eyes. We're singing beans and tomatoes instead of pina coladas when we think that way. The manger was not in a barn. For the average Middle Eastern home at this time, the home was like a a one-room home, maybe two rooms, and they would have a, a special place at the front of the house where they would bring the animals in at night, and a manger was a hole cut in the floor of the upper room, or it was like a, a little wooden um, box almost that was put down in the feeding troughs. And I want to show you a, a picture. Did you get that picture? This is my... <laughs> you... <laughs> You thought, you thought my We Three Kings solos were bad. Wait till you see my artwork here, which is here. This is called Clayton in the Morning, realizing that I needed to make an illustration. Y'all are taking pictures of it. That I needed to make an illustration. Uh, Lily, I should have called you yesterday and had you draw something, I guess. But this is my version of what this actually looks like. So if you see here, I need a laser pointer. This is a typical room. We'll get to that part in a minute. Well, what would happen is this is the exterior door and there were pretty much the whole family ate, slept, cooked in the same room, mostly because they don't have money for anything else. 
but at night it helps keep them warm. And at night they may have one family cow, a few sheep, maybe a goat. They didn't have a whole lot of animals. Is they would bring the animals at night inside the house. One, to keep them safe and keep them from getting stolen, but also to keep the house a little bit warm. And so this was like a couple of steps that would go up to a family room. And so the stable was a little bit lower. That floor was often sloped so that you could wash it out or sweep stuff down into the stables and then out the door. And the animals would stay down here. And these are the mangers. These are either holes cut in the floor where you can put some hay that if the cow wakes up in the middle of the night, you don't want to have to take your cow out at night. So he can just kind of lean over and get something to eat from, from the mangers. Just lean over, get something to eat. Or if you, if you had sheep, the sheep can't always pick their head up over here. And so they would build like a little low wooden crate and put it down in the stables and fill that full of hay. That's what a manger is. A manger is not a barn. A manger is not a stable. A manger is just a simple cutout in the floor of a family home inside the house. It's going to be important in a minute. So that's what I call the manger problem. We got to rethink that Jesus was born in a barn amongst a bunch of animals. The third problem we have, I would refer to as the N problem. Now, the reason this came is because the King James Version, good old King Jimmy. Everybody loves King Jimmy, right? The King James Version translated Luke chapter 2, verse 7 this way. It says, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. How many of you, that's the version that you remember? And you've told your kids there was no room for them in the inn. And the thought is that Jesus' parents, Jerry and Jerry, gosh, who's Jerry? In Jesus' name. Joseph and Mary showed up to the hotel. This is our picture. That Joseph and Mary showed up to a hotel and there's a big no vacancy sign. So they said, we don't have any room in our inn, but you can go out and stay in the barn. That's not exactly what happened. The reason for this is the Greek word for a commercial inn, like we think of, is actually the word pandakion, okay? I'm not going to have you memorize Greek this morning, but it's a different Greek word called pandakion. But the Greek word in Luke chapter 2 verse 7 is katalima, katalima. It's a different word, okay? That word katalima means a guest room. It doesn't mean a commercial inn. It doesn't mean a hotel. There's another word for a commercial inn. They had commercial inns, but that's not the word that's used in the Greek. The word that's used is katalima, which means a guest room. It's the same word for reference. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells his disciples to go into Jerusalem, and there is a place where they're going to have a, uh, where he wants to have Passover. Do you remember the story? And that's the Easter message. We'll save that for Easter. But when he tells them, he says, go, and there's this guy, and he's got a house, and uh, I, I want you to go to the Catalima because you're going to find it fully furnished, and that's where I want to have Passover with you. I'll read the scripture. Luke 22, verse 10. And he said unto them, this is the King James Version, behold, when ye are entered, you got to love some ye's, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good man of the house, the master saith unto thee, where is the guest chamber? It's Catalima, okay? 
where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples, and he shall show you a large upper room furnished there make ready. It's the same word. Why did King Jimmy translate it as guest chamber once, but in and the other? It's the wrong word they translated it into in Luke chapter 2. It's the guest room. It's the catalima. If we can go back to that picture again. Jess, you're doing amazing. It's that room on the end. Do you see that? There was supposed to be an exterior door, but once I drew the line, I couldn't make the door swing out without making it look weird. So just picture that there's a door that swings out. Did you like that one? The door? So you have the cow that eats and you have the door that swings. The cow that eats and the door that swings. But it is an upper room that every single house would have had. Hospitality is such a big deal in the Middle East that you you purposely built a house with an extra room just as a guest room because you could show up and you could be a stranger. And if you just show up to the well in a town, somebody would welcome you into their home because you could die if you didn't have food, shelter, and water. And so hospitality was a big deal. It was ingrained into their culture. Boy, I wish we could get more that way in our country that we thought about making room for people in our homes and in our lives and in our, our schedules. Get another message. They would have had a catalima, okay? That's the guest room that's there. There's always one there. So the problem is, we think that Jesus, his parents, Jerry, <laughs> I'm stuck on this, aren't I? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's her father's name in Jesus' name. Come on. And so Joseph and Mary show up to the hotel. There's a no vacancy sign. They go out to a barn. The problem is, it's not a hotel, it's a Catalima. What it's saying is, they showed up to a house, and they realized there was no room in the guest room. Why would there be no room in the guest room? Someone's already there. It's already been filled up. That same room, Catalima, you find that all through the Old Testament as well. Remember the widow of Zarephath? You'll find in 1 Kings 17, she built what's called a prophet's room on top of her house. She built a room for the prophet. That's another thing that that thing is called. It's the place where Elijah raised her son from the dead because she built it in case the prophet came by. So we see all through the Old Testament examples of this room that's in a house, not of hotels with no vacancy signs. The guest room was the extra room, but there must have been already someone staying there. So where is the most logical place that Mary and Joseph would have ended up? If there was no room in the Catalima, they were welcomed into the family room. Joseph and Mary showed up to Bethlehem in the house and lineage of David to a home where the owners of that home would have said, we already have somebody in the guest room. Would you come and live with us in our living room? And when Jesus was born, he was wrapped in cloths and placed in a manger inside the house. Jesus was not born in a barn. Jesus was not born alone by himself. He was born in the living room of a family that welcomed him in. He was carefully and lovingly wrapped up in the best cloth they have and placed in the best place they had available for a newborn baby, the soft manger. Does that change your perceptive? Because often we think Jesus was kicked to the curb and he was, nobody cared about him. There was no room in the end. 
There was no room in the inn, so they welcomed him into their living room. What a great perspective that actually has for us. Do you know some traditions, the Orthodox religions, uh, they actually go a little bit further. They believe Jesus was born in a cave. Like Joseph never even made it into the city. She was so pressed to give birth, he put her in a cave and then went into the city to get a midwife. And by the time he came back, Jesus was already born totally by herself. It was like Mary and Jesus and that's it. And they, they, they were in a cave. You may have never even heard that version of it. I'm just saying there's versions of things that we get that we don't know where it came from. That Orthodox version, anybody grow up Orthodox, by the way? Because if I'm wrong, you can correct me. That Orthodox version comes from a novel called the Proto-Evangelium of James. It was written in AD 200. Do you know like the canon of Star Wars, like the, the original three movies of Star Wars, they call it the canon of Star Wars, and now they've had all these other ones like Han Solo and stuff afterwards. They're not necessarily considered canon. They're just like, we took this character from the real thing and just created this whole backstory for them. And now this is this new thing. They do that all the time. That's what the Proto-Evangelium of James is. It's somebody who in AD 200 just wrote a story about Jesus' birth. He heard about this man, Jesus, and wrote a novel to sell books. Nothing wrong with that. It was just a creative author that went, oh, and then he did this, and then he did that, and then he did that. But it was taken as if that was the real story. You see, that's what happens if you like beans and tomatoes. So Luke was not referring to a hotel with a no vacancy sign. He wasn't born in a barn with just Mary and Joseph. He wasn't born in a cave. He was born in their living room and placed in the manger in that room as the best spot available to give to him. When I learned this, do you know what it made me think? If I got so much of that story wrong, if what I thought about Jesus' birth is different than what really happened, what else have I thought about Jesus? That's a version of it that might not be as accurate as I thought. Because I had some problems too. I talked about a manger problem, an end problem. When I heard about Jesus... There's something in me that said, I have to be a good person. Like, I can be a Christian, I get it, but I've got to get to the place of being, like, it's almost like I've got to be a Christian before I can become one. If I stop cussing, if I stop drinking, if I stop smoking, if I stop chewing, then I can become a Christian. And I led my life for a little while of going, I'll give my life to Jesus, but I got I to gotta straighten some stuff out first. Because surely he won't take a guy like me the way that I am. Surely for me to walk into a church, I've got to have the right clothes. I've got to talk a certain way. I've got to smile like everybody else does. I've got to put on the mask. I've got to put on the face. I've got, to, I've got to look the part before I can join in. And yet I see people tragically every year that put on the face and they're dying inside. I would rather you come broken, smelly, cussing, chewing, drinking, hooked on drugs, with a repentant heart that would see Jesus for who he really is. That he didn't die for you so that you can clean yourself up before you come to him. He cleans you from the inside out. 
And when he cleans you from the inside out, you realize, I don't have to do the cleaning on the outside. Because that's the essence of religion. It's what the Pharisees did. They kept the outside clean. And Jesus said, but inside, you're full of dead men's bones. He said, you wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is still dirty. I'm not here to fix your outside. I'm here to fix you from the inside out. The problem with thinking I had to be a good person is I thought that being a good person was enough. As long as I'm good, I'm good. That means when I'm not good, I'm not a part of the family anymore. I'm not allowed to struggle. I know people that think, I'm not ready to give my life to Christ yet because I've got doubts. I mean, I believe a little bit, but I've got doubts, as if Jesus can't handle your doubts. Open up your Bible right in the middle. Just start to read some Psalms. You're going to read about some people that had doubts. You're going to read some people who said, God, you promised this, but I ain't living in that right now. Would you remind me again who you are? But those same people, those psalmists went, but yet I'm going to praise you. Read the book of Job when, when Job goes, I don't get it, but though he slay me, yet will I still serve him. I don't know that I've gotten to that place in my prayer yet, but there's doubts all through the Bible. God can handle your doubts. Maybe the things you thought about Jesus and the things of what he thinks about you have been wrong too. Part of some of the prayer ministry that we've gotten into a little bit that we've trained a couple of dozen people in our church with now, is learning to hear the voice of the Father, our Father, over you. Because I know that we work through so many misconceptions about what God thinks of us. I love you. Look, I had no problem with loving God. I love you. But I probably had a problem with really truly believing how much he loved me. Because I didn't love me. So if I don't love me, how could he? But when I began to really listen and learn to tune in to the voice of the Father over me, I was shocked. Because I came in with all the shame. I know what I had done. I know what goes on inside this head. And I would come before him and I'm just like, ugh. I don't want to come because he's going to tell me, oh, you're a terrible person. Like you literally, I couldn't pray because I was convinced that when I came in, even though I knew better, I felt like when I pray, it's just going to be a reminder of all the bad things that I've done or the ways that I don't measure up. But then I really began to listen to his voice and I heard the father say, you are my son whom I love, and in whom I am well pleased. And I'm like, God, that sounds familiar. He said, yeah, I said that over my son. When Jesus was baptized, heaven parted, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. And the father told me, I love you as much as I love Jesus. I don't hold it back. I don't love him more than I love you and her more than I love him. 
I love you as much as I love my own son because you are my son. When you stop just believing and listening to a version of who God is, and you can tune your ears into the voice of the Father singing his love song over you, your life will never be the same. Stop listening to your own voice, which, by the way, is often just the echo of the enemy's voice in your heart. You think it's you telling yourself, he won't love you, he won't accept you. You're actually just repeating the lie you've been hearing for a long time. It's not your voice, because God didn't create that voice in you. So that's the echo of the enemy's voice that's trying to keep you from the stream of living water that's meant to flow through you. Don't keep believing a version of who God is. Find out who he really is. Can I end with one group of people? That's my favorite part of this whole story. It's the shepherds. I want you to understand what a shepherd was by the time Jesus was born. Shepherds were a lowly, looked down upon profession. They were smelly. They had a job that nobody else wanted, that didn't pay so very much, and they were kind of weird because they just hung out in the fields all the time. A far cry from Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And yet it was this lowly group of people that God chose to announce the birth of his son to first. They were a lowly, unclean people. Listen to me. No shepherd would have ever expected to be welcomed into the nursery of a king, much less a savior. And yet here this angel shows up. And he tells them, the Savior, a king has been born. You're going to go visit him. Now, can you picture a shepherd? Did you, did you not see what we do? Like looking behind them. Like you get a prophetic word sometimes in church and you're like, is there somebody back here? What do you mean we're going to go see him? We're shepherds. We don't. We don't, we don't hang out with kings. We don't hang out with saviors. Surely there's a prophet somewhere. Surely there's a, a Pharisee somewhere. Surely there's a zealot somewhere that can go visit him. We're shepherds. I, I don't, no wonder they're afraid. Yet you're going to go visit him. I can imagine the shock and awe of these shepherds of feeling like everything we've been taught about who the Messiah is going to be excludes us from someone like that. Surely he's coming for the royal household of David. Surely he's coming to reestablish his kingdom. We're just observers of the things of history. We don't participate in these things. We would never be accepted into a place like that. Pharisees don't hang out with us, and they're the most religious people we know. Why would a king, why would a Messiah want us as shepherds to be around? But then the angel says something very different. The angel says, this will be a sign to you, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. <laughs> Can you hear this through a shepherd's ears? Did you say wrapped in cloth? Did you say the Messiah is in a feeding trough for animals? 
Did I hear that right? Yep. Wrapped in cloths. Placed in a manger. Isn't he in the palace? Didn't he come down in like lightning bolts and have a big announcement and on a white horse? Second one, by the way. Um, second coming. Isn't that the way? And they heard wrapped in cloths and placed in a manger. And he went, he's like us. He's like us. Are you kidding me? I would have never been welcomed in the place of a king. But this king, this Emmanuel, is with us as us. He's just like us. I've got to see that. I've never seen a humble king before. What, what king is born in that kind of an environment? Could it be that we could be welcomed into that room? Let's go. So they show up not to a barn. They show up to a home. They open the door to the home. And they see the Messiah wrapped in cloths and placed in a manger. And if I'm that shepherd, I just wanted to show up to see a king that was born into a situation like us. But the moment I see King Jesus, this little baby laying in a manger wrapped in cloths, I promise you there's something else that popped up into my head. Wait a minute. There's something else that gets wrapped and put in the manger. See, at Passover every year, they have to take the firstborn lamb without spot, wrinkle, or blemish because they know that's going to be the Passover lamb. So when this Passover lamb is born, they wrap it in cloth. They separate it from the others because they don't want it to get bruised. It's got to stay perfect for the day of sacrifice. And they put it in the safest place that you can put a perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb. And they place it in the manger. And these shepherds come in and the light bulbs go off and they go, Our king is in the place of the Passover lamb. What king is this? What Emmanuel, God with us is our substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. He is with us. He is like us. And He will die for us. He will take our sin on His body so that sin can be done away with. He is the last sacrificial lamb. When I look in the manger, I no longer see it as a family that got kicked to the curb. I see it as a, a Savior born into a home like mine, a person, a, a Savior of the common people who will save rich and poor alike. But he doesn't have to have the status and the following to achieve the end that God had in mind. When I look at the birth of Jesus, I want to look at it through the eyes of the shepherd. That manger was their sign. It may not have been the sign for Herod. It may not have been the sign for the Pharisees. But this was their sign. I want a sign like that. 
Can you imagine? Wouldn't it be like you to be different than we thought, different than we want, but better? You're better, you're better. He's better. He's different. And I pray this Christmas season that you'd see the sign that he's better. He's different than he thought. He's different than we wanted, but better. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you've come. I thank you that we're no longer looking for something that hasn't happened yet. But when we look to you in this Christmas season, we see the author and the perfecter of our faith. We see the king of the shepherds. We see the king of the common family. We see the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we worship you today, this morning. I pray that you would ruffle the feathers in us that need to be ruffled. You would rattle the cages that need to be rattled that we would see you for who you really are. I don't want a version of you. I don't want an American version. I don't want an Australian version. I don't want a middle-class version. I don't want a white version. I want you. I want you for who you are. God, I pray that you open ears, open eyes this holiday season. I pray for our families that don't yet know you, that have already convinced themselves of who you are and who your followers are. God, open their eyes. Let them dream dreams this Christmas season of you. Wake them up in the middle of the night. Visit them with angels and declare the Messiah has been born. His name is Jesus. He will save you. He will pull you up from the miry clay and put your feet on a rock. I pray for a restless Christmas for those that don't know you. The turmoil would begin to happen in them. But in the turmoil, they will find you. I pray that you protect them from harm until that day. Protect them from harm, from car accidents, from diseases, from back and neck injuries. Protect them. Because they're going to find you in this Christmas season. They're going to experience your love. God, we don't want to just know about you. We want to know you and experience your love. And we bless the family gatherings. We bless the Christmas dinners. We bless the Christmas Eve invites. We bless the times of going home for some into some stressful family situations. But this will be a day of bringing light into darkness, of bringing water into dry places. In Jesus' name, reconcile families back to you and to each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.